If you want to make your way back toward your seats, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. If you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, or maybe you've been uh, a couple of times, a couple of Sundays here in recent weeks, uh, we, like, we like to give uh, kind of a reminder here over the course of this year that we are tracking throughout 2017 in the uh, large narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and uh, we're doing that in the context of something that we have called the Bible Initiative. There's a little red book resource out there that you can grab in the lobby at the Welcome Center if you want to. It has a reading plan in it, as well as some resources about the context of any given week's reading, as well as a family activity and some small group questions and some personal reflection and those kinds of things, uh, all geared toward helping us better understand uh, the Word of God from beginning to end. And that means on Sunday mornings, we're teaching alongside that. So we teach on a Sunday on the front end of what we're about to read during the week. And so we're covering some larger passages of Scripture on Sunday mornings in our sermons, which is different than we would do normally. Typically, we would take uh, a single book in the Bible or a section of a book, and we would teach through it verse by verse. Uh, We're doing things a little bit differently this year uh, than maybe would be our norm. And and today, we have come uh, to a section in the book of Exodus that includes the Ten Commandments, and so that's where we're going to be this morning in Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bible, you can open up to there. And... What we're looking at are all of the Ten Commandments in general that the Lord gives to the Israelite people while they're uh, out in the desert after they've left Egypt and slavery in Egypt. Um, I want to provide just a little bit of context for that. Uh, What we have seen up to this point is that the Israelite people were in slavery in Egypt. Their slavery and oppression got worse and worse and worse. They cried out to the Lord and he saved them. He saves them in this incredibly powerful display of the fact that he is the Lord and there is no other God in existence. And he kind of goes head on with Pharaoh and with the gods of Egypt. And it culminates in this, the killing of the firstborns and the Passover for the Israelite people. And they go running out of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. They go through the middle of it, and then the waters close in on the Egyptian army, and then there are the Israelite people out in the desert. And it's there that the Lord really begins this personal, intimate relationship with the Israelite people. It's what he promised to Abraham that he would be... uh, the means by which Abraham's family would be the means by which God was going to redeem all of humanity. They were going to be a special people that he had a relationship with. And this really starts to take shape in the wilderness outside of Egypt. In a real, in a very real sort of way, the Israelite people are saved in Egypt and then sanctified in the wilderness. God brings the Israelite people out of Egypt and then he uses this 40-year-long period in the wilderness in order to get the Egypt out of the Israelites, if you will. And the same thing happens in our relationship with Him. We are saved at the cross, and then we're sanctified throughout life. At the cross, we are, when we put, put faith in Jesus, we're freed from the penalty, the price of sin, that is 
placed upon Jesus and uh, his death on the cross, his resurrection by faith in him and his work. We're saved from the penalty of sin. And then for the rest of our lives, God sanctifies us or he works to free us from the presence of sin in our life. Salvation is like the very first rung on a ladder, if you will. And the ladder is living this sanctified sort of life that we climb kind of day by day and the Lord works in our hearts and He molds us more and more into His image. But salvation is the first rung of that ladder. You don't go go anywhere without taking that first step. Salvation is the very first step. And so it's into that that God speaks these Ten Commandments. There's a scene right at the beginning of Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, where Elizabeth Swan is captured by uh, a group of pirates and she requests a parlay, which is a conversation with the captain of the ship. And so she's taken to the Black Pearl where she meets Captain Barbosa, and she strikes this deal that he's going to leave their town alone and uh, yada, yada, yada. And she says, now take me back to shore. And... According to the pirate code, you've got to take me back to my home. And he spins around, he's agitated, and he says, first of all, taking you back to shore was not part of our agreement. Second of all, you are not a pirate, so the pirate code would not apply to you. And third, the pirate code is more like guidelines rather than actual rules that have to be followed. At times, we approach the commands of the Lord in the same manner. Kind of like guidelines. And so long as they're convenient for me or they don't impose upon me too much, then I'll get around to them and obey them. The reality is that God commands us to live a particular way if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And he expects us to be obedient to that. Having saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt... He leads them through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness, and then he gives them his commands. So we're going to look at that in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. I'm going to start in verse 1 of Exodus 20. It says this, And God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. If you read too quickly, you would blow right past that, but it's important. God speaks. And that sentence, that phrase, should remind us of the Garden of Eden, where the serpent says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The answer in the garden was absolutely he said that. The answer here, for the rest of the time that the Israelites exist, for all of us today, did God actually command you? Did he actually say, fill in the blank? The answer is yes. God speaks. He spoke and creation snapped into existence. He spoke and he told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He spoke and he warned Noah about the judgment that was coming through the flood. He spoke and told Abraham about this covenant promise he was going to make with him and his descendants to be a blessing to all the nations and that they were going to have their own land. He spoke and called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. He speaks here And he gives these commands to the Israelites. He speaks throughout Scripture and lays out for us what it is to live a life that models him in the world that he created. If you're a parent here this morning, raise your hand if you've ever used the phrase, because I said so. 
you're a parent here and you're not raising your hand, bear in mind that one of these Ten Commandments is not to bear false witness. If you're a child here, raise your hand if you've ever heard your parents use the phrase, because I said so. Absolutely. My parents were here last service. I raised my hand. I looked right at my parents. (laughs) We have absolutely heard that. And in a very honest sort of way, we can approach the commands of the Lord that simply. He has spoken. And if He had done nothing more than created us and created the world that we lived in and graciously given us breath to breathe and food to eat and a place to live, it would be, that, those things alone would be enough for us to say He has commanded us to live a particular way within the creation that He made and He probably knows best. He said so. And I can take him at his word. I can trust him in the midst of that. But that's not the only reason we have for being obedient. We'll get to a second one here in just a minute. But one place that our obedience comes from is the simple fact that God as creator said that this is the right way to live. This is the best way to live. It's intriguing for me to watch us as uh, Christian individuals in the world today hold out this desire and this hope that our society will function according to the morality that God has laid out in the Bible and yet at times dismiss ourselves from some of the same commands we want the world to operate by. It's interesting to me that we will fight an an honorable, a good, a valiant fight for the world and for our society to function according to the morality that God lays out in the Bible, and yet, at the same time, ignore those things in our own hearts as if they don't apply to our life in particular, but they do apply to the world in general. If we want God's word to be the foundation for the world around us, we must first make it the foundation of the heart inside of each of us. And part of that begins with the simple fact that God speaks. We have more words and more resources, more voices and opinions available to us today about the Word of God than any other people that have existed on this planet at any other time before us. And while all of those are helpful and they're beneficial in the life of a believer, they're edifying to the church, they do not change the fundamental reality that God, in His Word, has spoken directly to us. And for the rest of your life, you can go back to His words and put that filter on everything that you read and see and hear and experience in life. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. We go to Scripture because that is where we find God as He has chosen to reveal Himself to all of humanity. He has revealed His plan for salvation to us through His Word, and He has displayed that in the life of Jesus Christ for us. All of the other things that people have to say about the Word of God are wonderful resources, but they are just that. They cannot replace the actual Word of God in our lives. Our obedience is not to the thoughts and words of any other human being. And that includes me. When you come here on a Sunday morning and you listen to what I teach from up here, or what TA teaches from up here, Kurt is going to teach next week, or anybody on our teaching team, 
Your obedience is not to the things that we say. You don't leave here on a Sunday morning and say to yourself, well, Tim said, or what Kurt said, or what Randy Binkley said. No, you take what is said from this pulpit, you take what's said in a podcast or in a sermon you listen to from anyone else, a book that you might read, and you put it through the lens of Scripture. And you say to yourself, are they teaching me truth? And then your obedience is to the Word of God, not to any individual. The words of others can be encouraging. They can serve as a wake-up call to the church. They can provide clarity or understanding. They can spur us on in our walk with the Lord. But our obedience is to the God who created the universe. Our obedience is to the God who has spoken. God speaks. We should listen. So it begs a question. Are you listening? Are you in Scripture regularly? Listening for how the Lord has revealed himself, listening for how he speaks to us. If not, here's a plug to join us this year. You can grab one of those little red booklets out there and read alongside us. It's not too late to jump into this. We're in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of Bible left. You can can join us in the midst of this. But if you've said to yourself, you know what, I tried that. It wasn't really like a good fit for me. That's fine. You're not going to hurt our feelings. We'd love to give you something else, some other resource or reading plan or some other framework that could assist you in being in Scripture regularly. And then our encouragement is don't just read passively. Don't just sit down and kind of let your eyes roam over the page and then check it off the list. Be active when you read the Word of God. What is it that he's saying? Pay attention to the truth that's there. Meditate on that. Reflect on it. Pray about it. Allow it to speak to you and to transform your heart and to transform your life. Are you praying? Are you having conversation with the God of the universe? And in the midst of your prayer, do you just sit down and tick off a list of things that you want to bring to Him and hope that He acts on behalf of? Are you stopping and listening? You don't exist in a relationship with anyone where you do all the talking and they do all of the listening. Our relationships with people are communicative, back and forth. Listen. Listen when you read Scripture. Listen when you come to the Lord in prayer. Listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you, prompting you. God speaks. We should listen. Verse 2 says this. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God gives any command, he gives a reminder that he saves, that God saves. It's interesting and worth noting for us that the Israelites have been out of Egypt for just a matter of days at this point. And our reading this week is going to start in chapter 16. We left off in Exodus 15. We're going to pick up in chapter 16. By the time you get to Exodus chapter 20, the Israelites have forgotten that multiple times and they're grumbling against the Lord. Did you just bring us out in the wilderness to die here? Because we could have died in Egypt. And he provides this reminder. No, I, I saved you. I didn't bring you out here to forget about you. I saved you. He doesn't remind them of this to be coercive when he gives his commands. He reminds them of this so that he can ground his commands in his grace. It's to remind them that they've already been saved 
from their slavery, that their ability to perfectly follow the commands that he's about to lay out does not change the fact that he has already saved them. Their ability to uphold God's commands does not influence his decision to save them. When they get out into the the wilderness and into the promised land and they fail to obey these, he's not going to send them back into slavery in Egypt. He has already saved them. He loves them, so he saves them. He loves them, so he sanctifies them. The same is true for us. There's not a person on the face of the planet who could live obediently enough to earn Jesus' death on the cross. There's not a person on the face of the planet who could live a good enough life to not need Jesus' death on the cross. We need regular reminders of our salvation. We have to have them. It's why we gather together in worship on Sunday mornings and why we get together in small groups throughout the week. It's why we celebrate communion and baptism regularly in our services. It's why we sing the gospel in the lyrics of the songs during our worship. It's why we preach the gospel when we come to God's word every Sunday. It's why we encourage you to spend time in scripture and to spend time in prayer and why we encourage you to be in conversation about the things that you're reading and the things that God has done in your life. It's because we need reminders. We need to remember that God has saved us. We need to ground ourselves in His grace. We need to be regularly reminded that our inability to perfectly follow the commands of Scripture does not disqualify us from the saving grace of God, but instead formed the prerequisite for Jesus' death on the cross. God loves us, so He gave His Son to save us. God loves us, and so He gives commands to sanctify us. Over the last three weeks, we've seen a few pieces of what God's interaction with humanity is. We saw it in the life of Joseph, and then in the calling of Moses, and in the Exodus account as the, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt. We saw that God is present in our circumstances. And here's God in the wilderness, present and speaking to the Israelites. We saw that he's personal in relationship. That's how he starts what he says to them. I am the Lord, your God. Personal in relationship. And that he's powerful to save. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Those truths show up all throughout Scripture. And this reminder of God's saving act is a foreshadowing of the Israelites' primary struggle throughout the rest of Scripture. It's that they forget what God has done on their behalf. In fact, when you read this week, you're going to see it come up repeatedly. Going forward, remembering God's work to save them from Egypt is going to be one of the primary struggles for God's people as they journey to the Promised Land. And it's a primary struggle for us, too. We're forgetful people. We need Reminders. God saves, and we should remember. Which, which begs a few questions. Do you have regular rhythms in your life built into the fabric of your day or your week or your year so that you can remember God's saving work? Parents, do you have them set up for your family, for your children? 
In Exodus chapter 12, God gives the Israelites the feast of unleavened bread, and he tells them why. So when your children ask you what this whole thing is all about, you can tell them it's to remember that God saved us out of slavery in Egypt. We have two of those kinds of times built into the calendar of the Christian church. Easter, where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and Christmas, where we celebrate his incarnation and his birth. We need more than that. That's why we come together in communion, to celebrate Jesus' death on the cross. That's why we make a big deal out of baptisms, to celebrate a person being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. We need those reminders. Is going to church a matter of heartfelt, loving discipline and obedience, or is it a matter of convenience? Do you decide whether or not you're coming to church on Sunday morning based on whether a better offer came up or there was something else that you could do, or do you come as a means of being in community with people and having a reminder about the gospel of Jesus Christ? We must have those. God saves, and we should remember And it's out of God speaking and out of the reminder of his salvation that he offers these ten commandments. He expects our obedience. If you've placed your faith in Christ for the salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, then he expects, he demands that we be obedient to what he commands in Scripture. And those are strong words, but they're absolutely accurate. You have God's words And you've been saved by God's work. So you should obey Him as an act of worship. You have His words. You've been saved by His work. Obey Him as an act of worship. It's His expectation that we would be obedient to His commands. The same love that compelled God to save us has compelled God to provide for us what it looks like to live well in light of His salvation. This is the way Kevin DeYoung says it. God cares enough to show us his ways and direct our paths. How awful it would be to inhabit this world, have some idea that there is a God, and not know what he desires from us. Divine commands are a gift to us. God gives law because he loves. And Maybe that's the first encouragement for you this morning. Maybe obedience is a struggle in your heart because... You've got a faulty view of God's commands. Maybe you view them as an imposition or as an inconvenience. When in reality, they're a loving gift from Him for how His creation, humanity, should operate within His world. God's love for us is evidenced in His provision of these commands, and our love for God is evidenced by our obedience to them. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. These are not guidelines from the Lord. They're much more than that. They were meant to be markers that distinguished his people from the rest of the world around them. In sanctifying his people in the wilderness, God is creating for himself a people who are holy, that are set apart and devoted to his glory. And these first ten commands are the foundation of, of that. They come in two pieces. Four of them are about what it looks like to love the Lord. And then six of them are about what it looks like to live well and to love well in relationship with the people around us. 
In this way, it's possible for Jesus to sum up all of the law in the book of Matthew by saying this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's all of it, Jesus says. Four of these are about the first part of that, and six of them are about the second part. And so very intentionally, I don't want to overcomplicate these. When Jesus tells us, when God tells us not to steal, we don't need a Bible study to know that that means don't take something that's not yours. We just need a heart that longs to simply be obedient. And so I want to walk through all ten of these. The first command is that you shall have no other God before me. It's simple. He is the only Lord. Worship Him as such. Don't elevate anything to a place above Him. Don't live your life in response to any other thing rather than the ultimate reality that God is the only God in all of existence and He has provided the means by which we can be saved and how we should live in response to Him. The second commandment is not to make any idol or any image of Him. We're to worship Him correctly. He's already displayed that all of those false idols are deaf and incapable of saving. He displayed that powerfully in Egypt when he brought the people out. He says, don't reduce me to the kind of image that the Egyptians bowed down to in worship that I have already proven can do nothing to help you. The third command is not to take his name in vain. It means that he is to be highly valued in your speech and in the way you bear his image in the world. Taking the Lord's name is more than just the way that we speak. When you become a Christian, you bear the name, if you will, of Christ. And so in the way that you speak, you should honor Him highly. And in the way that you live, you should honor Him highly. The fourth command is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath was God's command to work for six days and take one day of complete rest. Without saying it, we often function as if the world simply cannot survive without us. Men, we're worse about this than women are. We kind of have the idea that if I don't go and show up at my place of business or go and show up at wherever, everything's going to fall apart without me. I'm preaching it myself primarily when I say that the world will get along just fine without you. The very first church I worked at, I, I was in a one-on-one meeting with the associate pastor who was my supervisor, and I was explaining to him the internal tension I felt over taking vacation. I hadn't used any, and he really wanted me to, and I was explaining that I just, it was really hard for me to leave because, like, who would teach at youth group, and who would do fill-in-the-blank thing, and he had this coffee mug sitting there on his desk. It just had water in it. He said, put your finger in the coffee mug. And I thought, dude, that's your water. Like, that's gross. He said, no, put, put your finger in there. And so I reached out and I put my finger in the water in his coffee mug. And he said, take it out. And I took it out. And he goes, how long did that water miss your finger? And I said, well, it didn't. I mean, it just went right back to normal. He goes, that's about how long the Lord would miss you if you took a rest. 
obeying the Sabbath is an issue of humility. It's about recognizing that God is not just the creator, but he's also the upholder and the sustainer of his world, and that he doesn't need our help in doing that. It's about recognizing that we can work really hard for the Lord's glory and that that's a good thing, but then we can rest and let Him be the Lord. The fifth commandment is the first that's about how it is that we relate to other people. He says, honor your mother and father. Young people, the breeding ground for learning to be obedient to a God that you cannot see is learning how to be obedient to the parent or the guardian that you can see. The breeding ground for figuring out how it is that you uphold and live an obedient life to the word of the Lord that you cannot see is learning how to be obedient to the word of a parent that you can see every day. Adults, there's a great reminder in this for us as well. We don't ever outgrow our need to be obedient and to honor the Lord. And even though our obedience changes with our parents as we grow up and we move out and maybe we get married and maybe start a family, our need to honor them, our command to honor them does not change. You don't ever outgrow the need to be obedient and to honor the Lord. You don't outgrow the need to be honoring to your parents. The sixth command is you shall not murder. Life is sacred. God created it. It's immeasurably valuable to him. Just don't take it. Don't end it unnecessarily. You shall not commit adultery. God is faithful to his covenant relationship. He's faithful in his relationship with the Israelite people. He's faithful in his relationship with Believers today, he is going to carry through on the promise he made to bring us salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the covering of his blood for our sin. You be faithful in your relationship to your spouse. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. If it's not yours, don't take it. Next command. Do not bear false witness. Just as God is truthful and trustworthy in all things, we should be too. His word is going to bear out to be truth in all things. The question for us is, will ours? When you speak, when you offer something, will it always bear out to be true? Do you strive to speak the truth in all that you do? The last command, the tenth one, is do not covet. Don't desire something that your neighbor has. If you have something that you need, don't look to the Joneses next door because they've got it. Look to the Lord who provides and go to him in prayer rather than coveting the stuff that someone else has that you wish that you did. There are commands all throughout Scripture. These ten are merely a foundation. Christ comes and gives many, many more. The Old Testament is full of other Commands and God commands we should obey. Just simply obey. J.C. Ryle says true holiness does not consist of merely believing and feeling, but of doing and being. And so the challenge this week is to take an honest look at your heart and your life and say, Am I being simply obedient? And God has called me to be honest. 
God has called me to worship Him and Him alone. God has called me to be faithful in my marriage relationship. He's called me to defend the defendless. He's called me to love those who are maybe outcasts in our world. He has called me to give food to the hungry and clothes to the needy. He's called me to proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it. Am I being simply obedient? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have been freed to be obedient. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for us, even though we cannot ever hope to do the same. And then he died a death that he didn't deserve because there was no sin in him. He died the death that we deserve because we are sinful. And then he was placed in the tomb and he resurrected on the third day and then he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf and he's coming back again someday. And if you've placed your faith in that, then you're free to not have to work to earn anything for yourself, but to just be obedient because he has been gracious to us, because he's freed us to that. And if you haven't placed your faith in that, I want to offer as lovingly, but also as sternly as I can, that there will be plenty of really nice people in hell. There will be plenty of people who solve the Bible or just thought about morality and thought, I'm just going to be the best person I can hope to be. And if I do more good than I do bad, I'm going to go to heaven. Or if I just live a a decent enough life, maybe God will accept me. And the reality is that Jesus Christ is the only means by which we are forgiven. And so a, a message like this about living in a particular way begins at salvation. It starts with placing faith in Jesus Christ and then moves to sanctification. If you're a Christian, if you've called on the name of the Lord for the forgiveness of your sin, then having heard the word of God, having a constant reminder for yourself of his saving acts, our saving act on your behalf, just simply be obedient. If you haven't placed your faith in that, that's the beginning place. Starts at salvation. We're going to end our time this morning in worship together. We're going to end our time singing the truth that Jesus Christ has been perfectly obedient on our behalf. He's an all-sufficient Savior, and we can place our trust and faith in Him that by His work on the cross, we will be forgiven of our sin if we place our faith in Him. That is the gospel that compels us to be obedient. That is the gospel. That's the reminder we need of Jesus' saving work that frees us to live in obedience to Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for the opportunity to come and to look at Your Word. Thank You that Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed Your law and Your commands in a way that we simply cannot. Thank You that because of His perfect obedience, He is a completely sufficient Savior that we can look to and place our faith in and that His righteousness will cover us and we can live in right relationship with You. Lord, we want to worship You because of that. We want to live obedient lives that are grounded in Your grace and in Your saving work. Lord, we want to model Jesus well in the world around us. God, would You just 
compel our hearts? Would you move by your spirit in our hearts to be simply obedient to you? To find hope and joy and freedom in the fact that Christ has saved us and we don't have to do anything to earn it. God, and if there are people in here who have not placed their faith in you, I pray that your spirit would stir in their hearts to see their need for a Savior and to call on the name of Jesus as the only means by which they could be saved. God, we ask these things in his name. Amen.